Okay, John chapter 14, reading from verse 1 to 4. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Oh, the whole chapter, sorry. Okay. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home within him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, 
but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, Rise, let us go from here. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be here again and to uh, preach God's Word. Um, this is a wonderful part of God's Word. Uh, and I will do my best to place it in a bit of a broader context, uh, specifically in terms of what Jesus says to his disciples as he prepares to leave them. It would be great if you can keep your Bibles open, as I'll be referring back to the chapter uh, quite frequently. Let's just briefly come before our Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we... Hear your words echo down through the ages to us. We pray, Lord, that you will help us not only to hear, but also to understand. And not only to understand, but also to obey. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. I um, want you to... Briefly imagine a scene with me. If you saw the, the movie Gladiator, it will perhaps be a little bit easier to imagine this. When you go to the city of Rome, you have the opportunity to visit the Colosseum, which was obviously the major stadium uh, in the city. Uh, and uh, the sport, if that's what you can call it, that they practice there is a, a little bit different um, from the sports we practice today, with the possible exception of rugby, uh, because there was often a lot of blood involved. Um, now, I want you to kind of imagine standing in one of those passages. There's a specific gate leading into the stadium uh, that came up from the dungeons. And if you've spent any time in the dungeons, um, for most people, there was only going to ever be one exit, and that's the exit into the stadium. And as you stand there and you kind of see the, the door framed by the light, you hear people uh, shouting, baying, perhaps for blood. You may hear wild animals. You may hear bone-crunching noises as people kill one another uh, for the entertainment of others. And you know 
your next. You're going to have to step into this stadium. Can you imagine how those people must have felt? And, and hundreds, if not thousands of people, must have stood at that spot, knowing that they're going to step into this stadium. I don't know about you, but uh, the first thing that I think comes to my mind is fear. Absolute bone-crushing fear, because you know that this is likely to not end very well. And obviously for the vast majority of people, it did not end very well. And really the only thing that would have mitigated that fear at that moment would have been someone coming up and saying, it's going to be okay. You're going to survive this. But obviously for those about to step into the Colosseum, uh, that never happened. And when I read John 14, in the context of John 13, this really is the spot where we are at in this gospel. Because for a long time, but especially in John 13, the, the mood has darkened considerably. The disciples heard the teaching of Jesus. They uh, became very infused by it. But now Jesus began to say certain things that could only have generated fear. And they kind of standing there knowing we're going to have to step into a new situa situation. We're going to step, have to step into the world. And how are we going to cope with this? Um, if you go back to John 13, you will see, for example, in verse 33, Jesus saying to the disciples, I'm going. I'm going to leave. Now, for many of them, this must have come as quite a shock. Uh, they must have believed that him, the one who was sent from God, is with them and is going to be with them all throughout this journey. Then perhaps even more shockingly, one of their own number leaves, Judas, about to betray Jesus. So once again, it, it could only have generated uncertainty and fear. Here you have this kind of close-knit group with a, uh, a common sense of mission and purpose. And now one of them moves out with the clear intent to wreck the whole enterprise. Any one of us who perhaps have experienced betrayal in our lives uh, must know how bone-shattering this experience must have been for them. And often when we come into a time of fear and uncertainty, for at least some people, the reaction is bravado. I can do this. I can overcome this. I will be victorious. And this is essentially... Uh, Simon Peter's reaction, verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This is one response to fear, isn't it? kind of generating excitement, enthusiasm, saying, I can get through this. I will be victorious. Jesus boop, pops that bubble immediately. Then Jesus answered, 
Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter, instead of laying down your life for me, instead of celebrating a great victory on my behalf, you're no better than Judas. You're going to do the same thing, essentially. Can you imagine the scene at the end of all of this? The uncertainty, the fear. And now we come to Jesus' response. His response to the fact that all their bravado, all their dreams of leadership, all their dreams of glory being knocked out from under them and replaced with uncertainty, with danger, and especially with fear. Suddenly the future looked bleak and uncertain, and they would have been superhuman if they were not afraid. Chapter 14 is essentially Jesus' response to this fear. Chapter 14 is him gathering this bedraggled, fearful group and saying to them, this is what I want you to know. And his reaction is one of love and of care and of compassion. We can look at John 14 from a variety of different angles. We can learn a lot about the doctrine of Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the value of faith. But this morning, I want to specifically focus on this one aspect, how Jesus dealt with the fear of his disciples. And I will do my best to apply this to our own lives and our own situations as we contemplate our lives, our futures, and our relationships with God. Because you see here, Jesus gives the disciples the very things that they need to actually face up to these fears and to conquer them, to ride out the storm of fear, as it were. He gives them the reassurance that he is in control, that he has their lives in his hand, and that everything will, in the end, turn out for the best. If reassurance is the antidote to fear, in other words, if we need to know that everything will turn out for God's glory and for the good, then Jesus provides it in spades to the disciples here. First thing I want us to note is just simply the compassionate and loving way in which Jesus responded to the fear of his disciples. It's such a, a wonderful biblical theme, isn't it? How often in the Bible do we not hear the words, do not be afraid? Whenever we are confronted perhaps by things that are perplexing, that are difficult, um, we are restored by these words. And, and this really is how Jesus begins. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not let your hearts be troubled, or whatever translation you have in front of you. Uh, the, the, the same kind of intent. Do not fear. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Believe in God. Believe in me. In saying these words, Jesus is, Jesus is not denying the reality of fear. There's one, one response to fear that might say, oh, this is not happening, or it's not quite this bad, or we can get through it. Jesus clearly acknowledges their fear, that it has a real basis, and that it is affecting them in a very negative way. 
He responds to that by showing them a way out of this fear, not by denying the fear. I think there's, there's a very important basic first lesson in this. When our hearts are troubled, we can come to a Savior who will have compassion and who will show us the way out of fear. It's as if Jesus is saying that the best way to deal with fear is not to pretend that it's not happening, that there is in fact nothing to, do, to be afraid of, but rather to take our fears to the one who can do something about it. This whole passage is therefore about assurance or reassurance, if you prefer. The blessed assurance that they can feel safe and secure with him because he is able to overcome the very things that they fear the most. And in the rest of this chapter, Jesus then goes on to address specific areas of fear and how he himself can help them to triumph over them. So let's look at four reassurances. And then in the end, just to cement it all, we'll sing blessed assurance. Um, firstly, Jesus reassures them about the future. At its heart, many of our fears obviously deal with the future. What's going to happen? Um, will I be okay? And Jesus assures them, firstly, that their futures are secure with him. That in spite of things seeming all up in the air, all insecure, all without foundation, that he gives them a future. And, and he uses a fantastic image. Remember these people were living a kind of nomadic, itinerant lifestyle for a long time. They were traveling from, from place to place. Uh, Jesus, in another context, said the Son of Man doesn't even you know, have a place to lay his head. You know, there's, there's this kind of um, uprooted lifestyle, traveling, preaching the word. Um, and Jesus' promise here, in terms of the future, is of stability. A home. Where I go to, I'm going to prepare a home for you. In other words, your life will be in a very different way because a house is being prepared for you by Jesus himself. Even though they now fear he's going away, Jesus is actually saying to them, it's, one, it's the best possible thing that's, that can happen to you because I am going away, I am going to prepare a place for you. Perhaps we are so comfortable in this world that the full power of this promise escapes us. But we need to understand that the Christian faith makes eternal promises. And part of overcoming our fear is to know that this life is not all that there is. That although this life can knock me about, if I do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if I am His then this promise of a home being prepared for me also applies to me. A few years back, I um, went to the city of Oxford to uh, walk in the footsteps of one of my great heroes, C.S. Lewis. Um, and you can visit several sites associated with uh, Lewis's life. Uh, but one of the, the strangest ones is Oxford Crematorium. 
which apparently was built somewhere in the um, 1950s. You know, this kind of brutalist architecture, just this kind of concrete building. And in the walls of one of the buildings, there's, there's just kind of plaques with um, dedications to the people who were um, cremated and whose ashes were placed in uh, niches there. And one of these plaques belongs to Joy Davidman, who uh, was married to C.S. Lewis um, towards the, the end of his life. Um, this is a great movie um, about their relationship. Uh, she was an American lady, got married to Lewis, and a few years later, uh, she died of cancer. And in the midst of this concrete, uh, you have this dedication penned by Lewis himself. And it's incredible to see a thing of such beauty and such profound truth in such a, to be honest, ugly place. Lewis wrote, Here the world, stars, water, air and field, as they were reflected in a single mind, like cast-off clothes was left behind in ashes, yet with hope that she, reborn from holy poverty in Lenten lands, hereafter may resume them on her Easter day. Lewis is saying, yes, she's ashes now, but Joy Davidman, because she believed in the Lord Jesus, will have her own Easter day, will have her own resurrection, and will take up all of these things again that's been left behind. And as I read that, I thought to myself, there's a light that can even penetrate the darkness of a municipal crematorium. <laughs> there's a light that can penetrate into the darkest of situations. Because we know, we should know with everything in us, our future, indeed our eternal future, is secure with the one who makes these promises. Because he promised an eternal home. That's the first assurance or reassurance. The future is secure. Secondly, Jesus wanted to reassure them about the way to God. In one of his books, the American author Francis Schaeffer wrote about the prayer of a dying skeptic on the battlefield. He prayed, God, if there is a God, save my soul. If I have a soul. This is probably a fictional prayer. Schaefer probably wasn't there to write it down. But the fact that we do not find it hard to believe that someone can pray a prayer like this tells us a lot about the way in which people view religious certainties. People find it hard to believe that something can be absolutely true, true in all circumstances. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. That when we are looking for truth, we need to find it in him. Jesus not only wanted his disciples to know that there is a place for them to go to in eternity, he also wanted them to know the way to get there. And the way was not a plan, but a person, himself. You know where I'm going, Jesus said. And Thomas, um, who must have been one of the most literal-minded people who ever lived, said, uh, no, Lord, actually, we don't. We don't know the way. 
um, we can kind of be very thankful that Thomas made that statement because Jesus responded with one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Don't you know me, Thomas? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's so much that we can say about this statement, but let me stick with one observation applied to fear and reassurance. Doubt can paralyze people with fear. This includes doubts about God or about the gods. I've been uh, in, the term, uh, in, in the course of sharing the gospel with people of various faiths. I've been in, in, in homes where people have kind of this whole panoply of gods up on the mantelpiece um, with the hope that they, they're not offending any of them. Um, you know, kind of a, a catch-all approach to religion. Uh, we see this in the Bible as well. You know, um, Acts 15, no, Acts 17, where we're Paul's in, in Athens, you know, and he finds his altar to the unknown God. People, you know, are just trying their level best to, to connect with the divine and, and hoping that something will stick. But Jesus now says very clearly, cuts through the fog about our beliefs and doubts perhaps about God by saying, if you want to know God, if you want to get to God, here's the way. I am the way. In the end, as I said, it's not a person or a plan, but Jesus himself. For the disciples, this was a reassurance that their time with him was not wasted, although the road may look dark and foreboding at this point. They know that they are on the way with a capital W because they are following Jesus. I can reference this prayer um, of Schaefer uh, that I said at the beginning. Again, we can say to a desperate world, yes, there is a God, and yes, he can be known. Follow his son, Jesus Christ. So, to this group of people with knees knocking, firstly, Jesus says, your future is secure. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The way to the future is known. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then thirdly, he um, reassures them about the nature and the character of God. So, people might have thought, well... Who is this God that Jesus is speaking about here? Um, can we, in fact, fully trust him? Verses 9 to 10 has this incredible interaction between Jesus and Philip. Show us the Father, he says, and that will be enough for us. Um, when we are fearful, sometimes we want to have ironclad proof that things will be okay, that the answers that are given will, in fact, eventuate. We want to kind of sign ironclad contracts. And essentially, this is what Philip is saying. He's saying, well, I, I kind of understand that you're saying that the future is secure. I kind of, kind of understand that you're saying that this is the way to the Father. But maybe the best way to resolve this is if you can actually show us God. You know, just pull away the curtain for a moment Show us the Father, that'll be enough. That will settle it for all of us. And in verse 10, we see Jesus' answer. And, and it almost, 
speaks of pathos uh, and of Jesus almost kind of exasperated by them not understanding. Don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. This is an amazing statement that has tremendous implications for what we believe about who the Lord Jesus is. It clearly teaches the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh himself. It must also have been a deeply comforting statement for the disciples. They have experienced Jesus as wise, merciful, compassionate, loving as having a love, a deep love for fallen humanity. And now he teaches them that the same things that they experienced and saw in him is true of the Father. In other words, if Jesus are all these things, then the same is true about God the Father. If we know Jesus, then we know the Father. God is therefore not some unknowable, impossibly distant heavenly potentate. But his character, his compassion, his love, his care, his mercy, all of these things were clearly displayed in Jesus himself. Jesus therefore is saying to them, when you think about God, there's nothing to fear. Because when you see me, you see God's heart. So free assurances. An assurance about their eternal destiny. I'm going to prepare a way for you. An assurance about how to get there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. An assurance about the God they'll meet when they get there. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But now we might say, well, that's all well and good, but these are impossibly distant promises uh, in a sense. That, that kind of kicks into full uh, understanding and, and full development only in eternity. Jesus is saying much more than this, however. He's also saying that in this life, in the here and the now, I'll be with you. So these are assurances, in other words, that when we live our lives, our daily lives, we can also do this with his uh, with an understanding of his involvement and of his love and his care and compassion. Verse 13, he encourages his disciples to pray to him everything you ask. Uh, in my name, I will do. And towards the end, he also prophesies the coming of the Comforter, of the Holy Spirit, that he will be with you, verse 16, forever. As Christians, we are sometimes accused that our faith is about a pie in the sky when you die. Um, things that only really come into full fruition at the end of our lives. These verses in John 14 reminds us that our faith is also something 
for the here and the now, for the daily grind, for the challenges that we face on every, uh, in every single day, where Jesus reminds us that we can pray to him, where he reminds us that the Holy Spirit inhabits our hearts and therefore will teach us how to live. After saying these things, Jesus says, let us go. So, an incredible passage where Jesus clearly just lays down what it means not to fear and why the disciples should not fear. Again, eternity in God's hands. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The way to God explained. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The nature of God understood if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And daily life strengthened. I'll be with you. Pray to me. The Spirit will be uh, in your hearts. So let me conclude. I grew up in a uh, part of South Africa known as the Free State. And way, way, way back when, uh, it was an independent country until the British decided to get involved. Um, and we had a president in the, the late 1890s. His name was Jan Brandt. And um, there's a statue of him in the main street in Bloemfontein, the capital. Uh, and at the base of the statue was his life's motto, or his life's motto is depicted. It simply said, everything will be okay. Alles zult recht komen, for those of you who speak Dutch. Everything will be okay. But it's kind of placed there, I think, with a bit of irony. Because it didn't. Everything didn't, you know, turn out okay, um, as far as he was concerned. Shortly uh, after his term as president, uh, the Anglo-Boer War broke out, the Free State lost its independence. Um, things didn't turn out okay. Now, there's, there's a way to react to fear that, that's kind of like this. You know, ah, uh, you know, she'll be all right. That's probably the Australian version of it, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, without any real basis of, of you know, being able to, to make that statement. And that is not how, as Christians, we are supposed to respond to uncertainty or to fear. Not a kind of baseless, oh, well, things will turn out okay but rather a fully biblically grounded trust on the promises of God. So when Jesus interfaces or interacts with the, the fears of his disciples, he's not shooing it away. He's not trying to kind of drum up false enthusiasm or courage in the lives of his disciples. Instead, he makes solid promises do not be afraid, he says to them. But he doesn't leave that there. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And here are the reasons you and I can trust in him. We are eternally secure. In him, we know the way to God. In him, we know the Father. And in him, we have promises that he will be with us to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, we especially thank you for the 
incredible, compassionate, loving way in which you gathered a group of fearful disciples, knees knocking, terribly afraid, and showed them the way out of fear. Lord, you know all of us. You know perhaps our fears. And we pray that you will enable us to hear your words this morning. Lord, to face up to those fears, not through a sense of false bravado or an unfounded belief that things will somehow turn out all right, but that you would instead help us to face up to them with trust in you, our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who promises us eternal security, the way to God, knowledge of God, and your presence in every single day. Lord, we, we know all these things. Um, we've been taught them for many years if we've been Christians for a long time, but it is so easy to forget them. And we therefore pray that this reminder this morning that we can and should trust in you will not only be with us on an intellectual level, Lord, that it will penetrate deep into our hearts and that it will translate into deep trust in you. Help us not to be afraid. Help us to trust in you. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.